Thank you for listening to Crossroads Community Church. At Crossroads, our mission is to be the church by exalting the glory of God, sharing and showing the love of Christ, and inviting others to be recipients of Christ's love. Now here's this week's message. Uh, so we've been reading through the book of First Thessalonians, and eventually we'll make our way into 2 Thessalonians, and um, I've been encouraged by it, because the more, I mean, it's always been a great book, but the more I read it, the more I, I see Paul encouraging people who are being um, kind of persecuted for their faith, and the more I see that happening in the culture, uh, I've been excited by it. And actually, anytime we all can read through a book of the Bible together, and, you know, together plot, here's what God's Word says, um, I really get happy about it. So, um, is anyone else? Kind of happy when we read through books of the Bible together? Okay. I'm going to pretend everybody in the room raised their hand and say that, yeah, so we are all excited to read through books of the Bible together. But Paul's been writing to them, right, encouraging them first because they're persecuted. Uh, and we talked about how the fact that one of his encouragements was the fact that we, Christ followers, escape God's wrath, the wrath of God, right? At the end of chapter one, he says that you, you know, people are talking about how you guys have turned from idols uh, to wait for God or the Son of God from heaven who will return. And when he returns, how we escape God's wrath, who rescues us from God's wrath. Uh, and we looked at in Revelations where God said his wrath is, you know, he says his wrath is complete with the pouring out of the plagues and everything before that is the wrath of God. Uh, but he also says, not only do we escape God's wrath or we'll be rescued from it, uh, but he says, I know you, I know the struggle that you've gone through. Um, because he had been through similar struggles. He spent time with them, so he said, hey, I'm not just writing to you as someone who doesn't know you, telling you pastoral words. I spent time with you. We know each other. We spent time together. And he says, I know your struggle, because your struggle is what I've gone through. Paul, also persecuted for his faith. So when he writes to them and says, hey, I understand what it's like to be persecuted for his faith. It's not just, you know, oh, I know what you're going through, that kind of sympathetic nod. He actually knew what it was like. And while he was there, we said this, uh, he got run out of Thessalonica. Uh, riots broke out because he was preaching the gospel. And he goes on to say to them that Jesus is going to return, uh, but what he focuses on now is what we're supposed to be doing while we wait, Right? Uh, he focuses on the fact that uh, God is bigger than the struggles that we're going through, uh, the persecutions, God's bigger than that. But also, he focuses on the fact that whilst we're here on earth, we're supposed to do better, right? And we're supposed to be different. Now, it's not that we're supposed to, we are better than anyone else. That's not what he's saying. But we are supposed to do better because we have God's Holy Spirit in us. And there should be a difference between a spirit-filled follower of Jesus Christ, someone who has God's spirit in him and believes in God, uh, and the average person who just doesn't or doesn't care, and it doesn't mean that they're a bad person, but there definitely should be a difference. And he says, hey, you're here, while you're here on this earth, God has to return. Uh, you should be doing better stuff. And that's what we're going to look at. So if you have a Bible, open it up to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And if you don't, there should be one under the chair in front of you, left, right, somewhere around you. And if not, just raise your hand and we'll have somebody bring you one. Uh, but in chapter 4, it's 18 verses. 
Uh, if you're looking in the Bibles that we have, it's um, page 836. And if you're looking at uh, somewhere online, we're, those Bibles are an older NIV. The new one might have slight language differences, but it should be the same thing if you're looking online at the updated NIV. We're starting in chapter 4. He says in verse 1, finally, brothers, and this is, <coughs> excuse me, again, his letter wasn't broken into chapters, even though at the end of each chapter here, the way it's broken out, he talks about the return of Christ. Uh, but he says, finally, brothers, because he's winding down his letter, we instructed you how to live in order to please God. And again, this isn't to please men, not to please congregations. It's not to please, you know, denominations or the culture. And this is way before my time. But some of the older pastors talk about the fact that, you know, in some churches, women could only wear dresses that were so long. Men had to be in suits. And if you weren't in a suit, they sent you home. And if your dress was too short, they sent you home and all that kind of stuff. Um, that's not what he's talking about. Because that was to please men. The word skirt does not appear in the Bible, nor does ruler or two inches above the knee. So that wasn't a, a God thing. That was a men thing. I understand where they're coming from, but I'm just saying. What he's talking about is how to please God. And here's the thing. He says, um, we instructed you how to live in order to please God, as in fact you are living. Now we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more. And underline both mores. We're going to come back to that because there's something that he's reiterating to them, and he wants them to take note of. He says in verse 2, For you know what instructions we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. Again, this wasn't church instruction. It wasn't men instruction. It was God's instruction. And he says, It is God's will that you should be sanctified. And that word sanctified is a way of saying, in, in, in a short, really quick way, saying that you should live a holy life. Be set apart. Be different than all the other people. And then he starts to define how it is you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality. And I know there's a big thing, it's not as big now, uh, about you know sexual immorality, about homosexuality. He doesn't use homosexuality because he's not just talking about that. Sexual immorality is any sexual activity that doesn't meet God's moral standard. And if you're wondering what that is, that's a whole other sermon. But it does include, if you're married, um, just you and your wife, not you cheating on your wife. Uh, if you're not married, um, it includes nothing. That's, that's all you're allowed to do, nothing. With, with, I'm, you know, don't hate the messenger, but that's just God's word and that's God's will. And here's the thing, a lot of people get caught up on this, and, and he's going to show, he's going to talk about this in a minute, and we try to impose the values of the church that we can't even live up to ourselves on the culture. That's not what we're supposed to do. He's not going out and telling every single person on the planet, this is how you are supposed to live. He's saying, you guys who are filled with God's Holy Spirit, this is how you're supposed to live, because you're supposed to be you shouldn't be the exact same as every other person in every other group. But then he goes on and he says uh, that each of you should learn to control his own body in a way that is holy and honorable, not in passionate lust like the heathen who do not know God, and, in, and that in this matter no one should wrong his brother or take advantage of him. The Lord will punish men for all such sins as we have already told you and warned you. And again, 
this, when Paul visited Thessalonica, he was there for like a little over three weeks. During that time, he told him about the gospel. He told him about the return of Christ. He also told him about, here's how you're supposed to live. Here's how you're supposed to do life. So he's saying, hey, we already discussed this with you. And he says, for God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. And here's where, again, people don't like to hear this, but this is what he says. Therefore, he who rejects this instruction does not reject man, but God who gives you his Holy Spirit. So when you hear the pastors up there saying, this is what marriage should look like, and nope, you can't, you know, do blah, blah, blah before you're married, and, and yada, 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 and all this stuff, don't hate the pastors. We're just saying, here's what God's word says. Now, we could say it in a nice way. Uh, we don't have to, you know, be mean about it. But, but also, that's for the church. He's writing to Christians. It's not for everyone who, who walks on the planet. I can't go out into, you know, the high school, although I don't want to talk about high schools because they shouldn't be doing stuff anyway, but into the college, I can't go out into, let's move on. All right. So anyway, um, basically what he's saying to them is all of our sexual relationships should be God on. And if you're not clear what that looks like, we get to ask God. Hey, God, is this, does this measure up? Is this, is this a standard? Have I crossed the line? We get to go back and we get to ask the author. And then he goes on to verse 9. He says this, now about brotherly love. So first he talked about, hey, you know, the sexual relationships, the way we interact sexually, that needs to be God honoring. Now he says about brotherly love, we do not need to write you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love each other. And here's how they were taught by God, because there's two ways that God teaches us. Two ways. First is through his word, which is the most pressing way, the most available way, through the word of God. God says thou shalt. God says thou shalt not. And there are things that, you know, we are supposed to be doing, like go out, share the gospel, blah, blah, blah. Things we're not supposed to be doing, like hating our neighbors. We're supposed to love our neighbors. We're supposed to love one another. All that kind of stuff. But then the other way that God teaches us is through his Holy Spirit. And that's good, because if I stand up here and I say, hey, you can go out and have all the sex kids go in the room. No, you can go out and have all the sex you want all day long with whoever you want. I, I was going to say that most of us should check me against the Bible, but some people may just go out happy and do that. But you have a biblical check against what the pastor is saying, but you also have the Holy Spirit of God. So when Paul showed up and he started teaching at Thessalonica, and we read where he said, our word came to you as the word of God with the power of the Holy Spirit. So when you hear something false from the pulpit, pray about it. And I've, I've said this, and we've said this when we do the pastoral live stream with all the other pastors. If you ever hear a pastor say something, even if he's right, but you're like, that doesn't sound right. Hey, can I, can I talk to you after? Because I have a quick question. You said this. That didn't sound right. What did you mean? And because sometimes we slip up, our words get ahead of our brain, or something is jumbled, and we say the wrong thing, uh, and, and, and stuff just happens. Or, uh, and I'll share this with you, because we, we spent seven, eight months, whatever, going through the book of Genesis, and I spent a lot of time, like three or four months, kind of digging through it before we started that. And then after one of the messages, Heather's not here, so we can talk about her, after one of the messages, Heather came up, and she didn't ask a question. She just said, you said A, but I heard another pastor say this. 
and it was literally something I had never heard before. And I'm like, huh, that's kind of interesting. I'll have to go check that out. And I did, and it changed my whole understanding of a particular passage of scripture. And it wasn't that what I was saying was wrong. It's just what this was so much clearer. And I'll tell you later what it is if, if you're interested. But, um, yeah, so when God speaks to us through his word, he teaches us through his Holy Spirit. And he says, verse 10, and in fact, you do love all the brothers throughout Macedonia. Yet we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more. And again, he's reiterating, hey, your, your sexual relationships, guys, you need to be living holy and pure lives. I know you are, but you need to do that more and more. The relationships you have with, with, with people in general, like those need to be like solid, holy relationships. And I know you're, you're, you're trying to, you know, love your brother and love your neighbor, but we need to do that more and more. And if you turn on the news, turn on the TV, and if you open Facebook or any social media platform, don't open Twitter for the next three days, because it's just all hate right now, but you open any social media platform, you can see where, yeah, you know what, maybe we need to love one another more and more. Then he goes in verse 11, he says, make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. And this is important. If you have a highlighter or a pen or somewhere you can circle this, uh, here's what it says in my, and most of them say some of the same translations, and to mind your own business. And this is important because this is where, and I know I'm a Christian pastor, not supposed to say this, but this is where the church messes up because we get into everybody's business. And yes, we're supposed to be a part of the community. We're supposed to be on the parent-teacher associations. Uh, if you want to run for office, run for office. Definitely could use some God-honoring people at civic and federal and state and all those levels. Uh, but we're not supposed to go out and tell other people, here's how you are supposed to live your life. We're supposed to live our lives in a God-honoring way through the Holy Spirit so that people can see the way that we live our lives. And then when they ask, well, how are you able to hold up against this? How are you able to do that? You know what? There is a God who loves me. He filled me with his Holy Spirit. He gives you an opportunity to share the gospel. But we're not supposed to go out to the local whatever and say, you know what? You guys are doing this wrong. And try to tell people who don't have God's Holy Spirit that they're supposed to live like people who do have God's Holy Spirit, even though those of us with God's Holy Spirit, we're, we're you know, sometimes we stumble, sometimes we fall. So he says, mind your own business and to work with your hands just as we told you. And the reason he told them that is because part of the persecution that they were um, receiving, uh, and if you remember, I said that some of the people who got saved and were in his church, there were prominent business people, a lot of wealthy women who owned businesses and who had um, um, business ventures. And so their families were now being persecuted because people are like, oh, you're a Christian? I'm not going to shop there. I'm not going to visit your business. I'm not going to buy your soap. I'm not going to buy your groceries. And they were like, dude, well, how are we supposed to earn a living? And he's like, hey, don't worry about them. Don't try to tell them that they're supposed to love one another. Mind your business. Go out and do you. Work with your hands. Get a job. Earn a living so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders and said that you will not be dependent upon anybody. But if you're going out and you're just doing you, not getting involved in everybody, and again, this is not to say we shouldn't be involved and we shouldn't 
you know, yeah, get involved in the community, volunteer, help out, run for office, do, do all of that stuff. But we can't go out and try to tell the people who don't have God's Holy Spirit that here's how you're supposed to live. And the only way that we're able to do it is through God's Holy Spirit. Does, does that make sense? So he's saying not only are your sexual relationships to be God-honoring, but all of your relationships are to be God-honoring. You're supposed to live holy and pure lives, not, not sexually immoral. Do that more and more. And you're supposed to love one another. Do that more and more. Jesus said, hey, the foundation thing he said was, hey, love your neighbor like you love yourself. And he went through great pains to explain that your neighbor, not the guy that lives next door to you, not the guy that looks like you, might even be the guy that hates you and wants to hurt you or could care less about you or thinks differently than you politically or religiously, but you're still supposed to love him. And then to you guys who are filled with God's Holy Spirit, he says, a new command I give you, because this isn't the same as all the others. This is for his followers, his disciples, those who are trying to live their lives like him and share his word. He says to you guys, love one another. That's the new command for us. And all of this, Paul is saying, hey, trying to live a holy life, we've got to do that more and more. And then loving one another, we need to do that more and more. And when you turn on the news and when you open up Facebook and when you, you know, again, don't open Twitter for at least three days, but next time you do, and you see the stream of hate and da-da and all this stuff, we need to love one another more and more. And then he jumps down to this, and we're going to close out with this because this is the, the heart of more of the return of Christ. And he says in chapter 13, brothers, we do not want you to be ignorant. And that word ignorant means we don't want you to have a misunderstanding or a lack of knowledge about this topic. Right? He says, we don't want you to be ignorant about those who fall asleep or to grieve like the rest of men who have no hope. Now, when he says those who fall asleep, uh, it was twofold thing. One is they wrote a letter to him saying, hey, you know what? Uh, when Christ returns, uh, you know, like my, my mom, my sister, my brother, they just passed away a few weeks ago. But when Christ returns, what's going to happen to them? They were believers. Are, are they going to, what's going to go on with them? And so Paul says, hey, I want you to have the knowledge about this topic. That being the case, what he's about to write, it's not an analogy. It's not a, a, um, um, a, a, a mysterious thing that he's writing to them in code. He's actually revealing the word of God to them. And he says, I want to make sure that you understand, because I don't want you to be like the other people who don't have a hope, because we are supposed to have a hope. And he says, we believe that Jesus died and rose again. And so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in heaven. And he's talking about the return of Christ. And he says, verse 15, According to the Lord's own word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left till the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Now again, this sounds a lot, a lot of spiritual hoopla, and it would make an awesome movie, but he's saying, 
I don't want you to be have a misunderstanding about this. I don't want you to be ignorant about this. So I want to make sure you're crystal clear and you understand that we believe when Jesus returns, he's going to bring all those who have died before that time with him when he returns. And he's going to come down with a loud command. There's going to be a, a, a scream, a voice, in my mind, a hallelujah from the archangel. And there's going to be a trumpet call of God. And then all these dead people who have died in Christ are going to rise. And a lot of people look at that and say, well, that, that's not what actually is going to happen. That he was just telling them a nice story or an analogy. But he says, I, I want to make sure you have the correct understanding. And he says almost the exact same thing in, uh, when he writes to the church in Corinth. In 1 Corinthians, he says this. He says, but I tell you this, brethren, this is the amplified version, flesh and blood cannot become partakers of eternal salvation and inherit or share in the kingdom of God. In other words, he's saying this, hey, when we go to heaven, this, I mean, as good as I look, my body won't be able to sustain in heaven. It can't. Just, just the way heaven is, just in the same way, and I know this is a really bad comparison, but if we tried to live underwater, this body as we know it, our physical bodies, they can't. They, 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 they're not built for that. And he says the same thing. Nor does the perishable, that which is decaying, which are our bodies, inherit or share in the imperishable, the immortal. He says, take notice, I tell you a mystery, a secret truth, a secret truth, an event decreed by the hidden purpose or counsel of God. So yes, was a secret. We didn't know it before. But he says, I am revealing it to you now. He's not saying, there's a mystery, and so I'm going to reveal a riddle to you to see if you can solve this mystery. He says, I am revealing it to you now. We shall not all fall asleep in death, but we shall all be changed. And the reason they use that phrase, fall asleep, is because from the Christian mindset, death was not permanent. From the Greek and Roman and all that mindset, when you died, you died. That, that's it. There was, there was nothing after you, you were dead. From the Christian mindset, death isn't permanent. When you die, they would use the phrase falling asleep because when Jesus, again, as we just read, when Jesus calls for you, you are going to wake up or rise to be with him. And Jesus used that phrase also throughout his ministry. He says, but we shall all be changed or transformed in a moment, in a twinkling of an eye, at the sound of the last trumpet call. The trumpet will sound. The dead in Christ will be raised imperishable, free and immune from decay, and we shall be changed and transformed. So he says the same thing to the church in Corinth that he says to the Thessalonians. And then in verse 17, we're going to end with this. He says, after that, we who are still alive and left after the, after the trumpet, the call, the hallelujah, and the dead rise, after that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will be with the Lord forever. And here's the, the most wonderful part. He says, encourage one another with these words. In other words, we're supposed to be talking about the return of Christ, and it's supposed to be an encouragement, especially when you look out at the culture now, when you look at what's happening in the world, like, oh, man, I wish... Jesus would come soon. When you see all the political division, like, I wish Jesus would come soon. I mean, look at how the Steelers are playing. I mean, 
seriously, Jesus, come soon. We want you to come back. But he says, while we're here and waiting, what should we be doing? We should be living holy lives and letting our lives be a witness to other people. And Peter says almost the same thing. In 2 Peter, he writes this. He says, since everything will be destroyed in this way, and he's talking about after you know God has put out his wrath and the earth is destroyed, and the way he described it, when that happens, uh, like the heavens and the air and the earth, everything's going to be burnt up, and then God will create this new heaven and this new earth. And he says, since everything will be destroyed in that way, what kind of people ought you to be now whilst we are here? You ought to live holy and godly as you look forward to the day of God and speed his hand. That's the same thing that Paul says when he tells the Thessalonians. He says, this is what we're supposed to be doing. Yes, talk about the return of Christ, not argue and debate over it, but talk about it, get clarification on it, but also make it your ambition to live quietly, to mind your own business, not to impose our views on others, but to live our lives in a way where we can invite others to share in the life we have in Jesus. Earn your living by your own efforts and to gain the respect of people who are not Christ followers, which right now are the people in the church in America. And then again, as the band comes up, he says this, that we are supposed to encourage each other with these words. This whole, this whole letter that he's written, he's, he's telling them specifically over and over again, Jesus is going to return. I know you guys are struggling. I know it's a hard world out there, but I know your struggles, and God knows your struggles, and things are going to get better. But even if they don't, live your lives in a way that honors God, that gives him glory, so that others can see the God in you and encourage one another. I'm going to ask you guys to bow your head. God, we just, again, pray that as we look at all the things going on in our culture, as we look at the, the arguments, the debate, as we look at divisions that come in every way imaginable, we pray that you would put it on the hearts of your people to encourage one another. We pray that we would, as, as we just read in your word, that we would live God-honoring lives, both in our, our romantic relationships and in our, our friendships, in our work relationships, with the people that we, we, we know deeply and the people we barely know, with the, the butcher, the baker, the candlestick maker, whoever we see in the, stops and, the shops and stores regularly, we pray that we would, as your word says, just show them the love of Christ. We pray that we would live in such a way that, as your word says, that we would do it more and more in such a way so that people outside of the church, people who don't know your love, people who have not experienced your love, would not want to be like us, but would want to experience you your goodness, your grace, and your mercy. God, we pray that, again, when we leave here today, if we've got nothing else, that we would understand that we are to be encouraged by your return. You didn't leave us alone. You know our pains. 
know our heartache. You know the struggles that we go through every single day. And you're coming back. God, we give you praise and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. God, we're grateful again that you know every struggle that we go through, every issue that plagues our heart, every hurdle that we have to jump over. But you don't leave us alone. You give us your Holy Spirit so that we can, as we talked about, do better and that we can be different so that we can show the world what it's like to be in a relationship with the God who sent his son to die for us. God, there are so many people in our homes, in our schools, in our communities that desperately need to know that you are here for them, that need to know your love, that need to experience your forgiveness and grace. And you've chosen us, your people, the people of God, to be your witnesses that that is available to them. The only way they're going to see that, Lord, is as, as we talked about, is if we do better. If we love our neighbors like we love ourselves. If we choose to be the ones who uh, hold our tongues. If we choose to be the ones who don't spit hate, don't spit violence. We choose to be the ones instead to show your love. God, I pray that you would just embolden us with a passionate desire to share your love with those in our circles of influence. Pray that you would bless us as we go, and that as we go, that we would be a blessing to you. We pray this in the name of your son, Jesus Christ, and everyone said, amen, amen, amen. Thank you, guys. Pray that you have an awesome rest of your week. God bless, and see you next week.